Always good to hear. Psalm chapter 5, uh, Psalm, Psalm 5, not chapter 5. It's Psalm 5 <laughs> is where we are this evening. Calling this David's design for our deficiencies. And really, it's God's design for our deficiencies, but David is the author of the psalm, and that's what we're going to be focusing tonight on David and his words that he gives to us in this psalm. And I've entitled the message, The Din of Discouragement. Someone asked me, what does it mean, the din of discouragement? Well, I had to look it up myself. No, I looked it up just to make sure I had the right definition of the word I was using. But it's just a resounding note, like ding, 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 ding. Just think about that. That's kind of the din of discouragement. It just keeps hitting you. It just keeps coming back. It's just something that's always there. And, and, and uh, you wake up the next day and you're discouraged again. Have you ever had that din of discouragement happen in your life? Last Sunday morning we heard the hymn story behind when morning gilds the sky and how the words fit perfectly with the music. Remember, it talked about the rising sun in the first verse. If no one else remembers it, Cindy does remember because she read it. But the rising sun. And then the, the notes uh, actually started out at the beginning on a musical scale and proceeded upward. You know the song, Do... A dear, a female dear, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, that goes up the scale. That's kind of the idea, where it started at the bottom, right, what, went right up the, uh, the scale, uh, and the hymn ends with a climax of, may Jesus Christ be praised. And we found that the music and the, the words of it were just a perfect uh, united force to give across that message. That's really important in music. You know, sometimes musical scores just tell a story and you don't even have to have words to it almost because it's telling a story. Now, if you were a composer of the musical score for a psalm about discouragement, which is Psalm 5, what instrument would you choose for the solo part? Would you choose trombones or trumpets? (laughs) Were you saying that just because... Mr. Berryman plays trombone. Well, that trombone, that's got a good, solid solid sound for discouragement. Uh, French horns? How about violins playing very quickly a a passage through there? Is that discouragement? I would choose an oboe. Or maybe a flute that's playing very melancholy. Or a bassoon. I love to hear a bassoon. Uh, That's quite an instrument. It has a double reed. Well, All of those things are used as a composer is writing a music and orchestrating it, deciding what instruments for what passage. In our Christmas musical, we had a song called Depth of Mercy. And it was a very thought-provoking song about the mercy of God displayed in our wretched lives. And we had a clarinet solo along with that. Cindy was playing that, and it was so beautiful, that clarinet playing with the choir singing it just fit right in with the music enhanced the music the superscription of this psalm says to the chief musician upon Nahiloth and as you read that word you think well what is that and then it says it's a psalm of David 
the Nahiloth, as best as we can know, was a woodwind instrument, like a flute or an oboe, clarinet, perhaps a melancholy sound to its melodious playing. The music that accompanies our worship is selective and meaningful. Not just any medium will work to adequately gel together the deep significance of the thoughts and words of our worship to the sounds and emotions of the musical phrase. So it's really important, the music that we're putting with it. Now, the book of Psalms, that's their hymn book, they sang these psalms, and in this case, it tells us what instrument they used. So this psalm of David not only directly gives us himself as the author, right at the superscription of the psalm, but also the instrument that should be used to express the deepest meanings of this psalm that talks about discouragement. Now, interestingly, David did not play the Nahiloth. He played something different. He called what, played what's called the Neginoth. Look on Psalm 4 if you have that superscription on there. That's a stringed instrument, like a harp. You know, you always see the pictures of David playing the harp. That was his instrument. And when he played before Saul, he was playing the harp. That was the Neginoth. So he did not play the Nehiloth, but the, the Nehiloth, but he chose that instrument to accompany this psalm. Here in his discouragement, he chose this melancholy, uh, very great instrument to accompany his lament. A composer by the name of Rimsky Korzasku wrote a piece for the flute called The Flight of the Bumblebee. Uh, I'm sure all of you have heard this song already, and if it's going to advance and play for us here. And as you listen to the music, it's telling a story already. It doesn't take much of a child in you to imagine what is happening. And as that bee is flying around, and I was looking at the back and I was not seeing it uh, uh, flying around like that. But it tells a story as it's flying around there. You see those, those wings of the bees just flapping around as you hear the music playing. So that's what happens when we have music that goes along with our worship. And for the Israelites, the Psalms, that was their hymn book. So they had the music that went along with it. Robert Schumann, a 19th century music composer and pianist, put it this way, to send light into the darkness of men's hearts, such is the duty of the artist. And so as musicians try to use their music to speak to you, they don't even need words sometimes. But how wonderful it is when we put the words with it that match the music and we can really get the feeling of what God is talking about. So I want you to imagine perhaps a flute or an oboe playing a melancholy melody as we read Psalm 51. I'll start in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy light. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt not destroy them that speak leasing or lying. 
The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face, for there is no faithfulness in their, in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. As the psalm begins, there's no doubt that David is discouraged. How many of us were discouraged because of something that came into your lives this past week? Did you have a moment of discouragement any time during this last week? You know, I, I don't even know if we need to raise our hands because it happens. Something happens and brings a little bit or a lot of bit of discouragement to our lives. It may be relationships that are ragged. It may be health concerns without healing. Maybe criticism from a coworker. Might be a spiritual life with struggles. Undoubtedly, something walked into your life this week of which you needed to deal with discouragement. The psalm begins with a plea. It's going to start with a plea. It's going to end with a promise. And then the bulk of the psalm between the plea and the promise are three descriptions that will help us conquer the discouragement as we look at the design that God has for our deficiencies. Wednesday night, uh, Pastor Caleb, was when we were in journaling through Genesis, was talking about uh, a chiasm, and we have a sort of a chiasm. Maybe he talked about the bookends of a certain passage. The bookends here of this psalm are the plea and the promise. And then we're going to get into the middle of it in between those. But it starts with a plea. The plea in verses 1 through 3, it was a morning prayer. Twice in verse 3, David said that it was in the morning when he met with his Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really not a morning person. However, I have found that if I don't find time or make time early on in the day, early on in the morning, to have my quiet time with the Lord, and it seems to slip away with so many important things to do during the day. And my time with the Lord dissolves into the midst of things that didn't happen that day. Has that ever happened to you? He says in the morning, he had a prayer. Actually, Hudson Taylor said this, the famous missionary to China. He had trouble finding time alone with God. He began to wake himself up at 2 in the morning. I have not done that. I mean, I have been awake at 2 in the morning at times. Uh, and I probably have been praying at times when I can't get back to sleep or something. But he made a habit then of getting up at 2 in the morning and use those quiet hours when everyone else slept 
to commune with God. Spurgeon said this, this is the fittest time for connecting with God. An hour in the morning, according to Spurgeon, is worth two in the evening. While the dew is on the grass, let grace drop upon the soul, is what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about that time in the morning that you have with the Lord. It's important to notice that it was in the morning that he directed his prayer to God. Not only was it a morning prayer, it was a personal prayer. Notice all the personal pronouns that we see here. You see him? My words, my meditation, my cry, my king, my God. It just goes on and on. Personal prayers. You know, someone else's prayer for us is just not sufficient. <laughs> when you, as a child of God, can walk into the throne room of God and talk to him. You know, it's really great when we have other people praying for us. I'm not denying that. And the prayers of other people are important. But it is your personal prayer to God that you need to use when you are discouraged. You're discouraged? Claim who your God is. Remember all you have learned about God in the Sunday night messages that Pastor Caleb has been preaching throughout all the last years. What have we learned about God? So many things. Make that omnipotent God, that omniscient God, that omnipresent God. Make him your God. Thank him for who he is to you. Pray to him as if he is your very best friend. He ought to be, right? We find that in scriptures many times. I'm reading in Deuteronomy this week. Not sure how many times God said to his people, Remember what I did in Egypt. Remember what I did to you with Pharaoh. Remember the time in the wilderness and when they didn't have water. And, you know, they were complaining a lot. Remember. Remember. I don't know how many times he says remember. Read in De Deuteronomy. It doesn't take you very long to see how many times he says remember all that I have done. Is your God a personal God to you? You can pray, pray a personal prayer. And in that prayer, can you remember all the things that God has already done for you? All the things that God has brought you through? And you can look and say, yes, I remember that, Lord. I remember that. Make him. Make him your personal God as you pray and you talk to him. Not only was it a personal prayer, but it was a passionate prayer. We see this in the first two verses and see how the phrases here, they increase in intensity. Look at it. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry. Hebrew po poetry can be actually a, a complicated study, and I'm not a master at it at all, but I love to glean from those who are masters. And one of the, the uses of poetry here, as the Psalms are poems, it is poetry, we're going to consider one of those uh, this evening, one of those things, aspects of it. 
We see it used in the first two verses, and it's called synonymous parallelism. Now that we can understand. They all say the same thing. They're parallel. They're actually kind of repeating the same thing. They're synonymous. They all kind of mean the same thing. But if this was an orchestrated piece that the composer was writing, he'd probably have a big crescendo sign over verse 1. Start at the beginning. Give ear to my words. Consider my meditation. That word meditation actually means groaning. Uh, can you imagine when you are discouraged? Are you groaning sometimes? <laughs> You're moaning. <laughs> You're just totally wiped out. Consider my moaning, my groaning. Hearken or listen. Pay attention under the voice of my cry. He was, he, he was speaking very clearly to God. Listen, consider, pay attention to what I'm saying. It's important that when you're discouraged, you go to God with a real passionate prayer as you speak to him. Ask him. David did it here. Why can't we do the same thing? Passionately praying to God. Not only a passionate prayer, but it was an expectant prayer as well. Verse 3, the end of the verse says, I will direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. The phrase direct my prayer is a real interesting pr uh, phrase. In fact, if you have the ESV in front of you, you find it, hey, it doesn't say direct my prayer. What does it say? I will make a sacrifice. What does that have to do with directing my prayer? The word direct actually means to set in order in the very way that they would set a sacrifice in order and the wood and have it all ready to, to, to have that animal sacrificed on it. We used to have a fireplace when we were in Brazil. Yes, it got cold, actually down to freezing in when we lived up in the mountains in brazil we often wondered how a house could burn down when we had such a hard time getting a fire started in our fireplace <laughs> now those of you that have a fireplace you know you've got it down to a science you know what you need you need that kindling you need all that that little wood you need some newspaper or whatever it is get that fire started those of you that are boy scouts grew, grew up the boy scouts well you've already got this already figured out well, I wasn't a Boy Scout. Grew up on a farm, but we didn't, we didn't even have a fireplace in the home. So to get that fire built, I mean, the fires we built, they were in the fall when we would rake leaves and we would have all the branches from the trees. I mean, that was a bonfire. And we'd roast our wieners and our hot dogs, and our, our, our marshmallows, and that was an easy fire to start. But in a fireplace, boy, that took a long time. A lot of coaxing. So there's a science to getting it. That is the word that David is using here to direct my prayer. Set all that wood in order for the sacrifice. That's why the ESV uses that phrase. Get it ready and ready that it will actually start when you start that fire and have it ready for the sacrifice. So when we are praying, how often do we pray and just random phrases come out and maybe repeated phrases that we're used to saying 
you know, like the famous bless the missionaries and bless the food and bless whatever else there might be to bless that really isn't our duty to be uh, maybe asking the Lord just to bless some of those things. But we, we pray and we don't even think sometimes we're praying. Has that happened to you? You actually start praying and you actually think about what you're going to pray first? We ought to. But so many times we just open our mouth and start talking and we don't really think about it. But yet the, uh, uh, the psalmist here, David said, set up that wood ready for the, for the sacrifice and get it ready there. Direct your prayers. Direct my prayer unto thee. And then he says, I'm going to look up. That's the expectant part. He used the same word at times. Remember the time? This is a negative uh, situation with David, actually. He was waiting for them to come back with, with notices uh, if Uriah was there killed in the battle or not. And, you know, he was expecting, he was leaning forward. He wanted to see if they're coming. Ah, someone's coming. And uh, then tell me the news. That expectant, that's the word he used here. Look up. You pray to God, do you expect an answer? Or do sometimes we pray to God and think, well, I'll do my duty praying, but I don't know if it's going to help. We've all been there, <laughs> haven't we? Expectant. He was waiting for that answer to that prayer. Looking up. The Hebrew word means to lean forward, to peer, to watch for. He was eagerly expecting in answer to his prayer. That's the plea that he starts out this psalm with. Then he gives us three descriptions. The first description, he wants us to look at the Lord. What is the Lord like? Verses 4 through 6 actually tells us what the Lord does not like so that we can find out what he is like. Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness. He doesn't like any wickedness. This is not hard to understand. He is holy. He's pure. Could have no pleasure in furthering the pleasures of sin. And this is said in contrast to, the, to his enemies that are wicked. He goes on to say, no evil will dwell with him. The word dwell actually means sojourn or travel along with. Remember the verses in... In, in Psalm 1, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. God says, I'm not going to have wickedness or wicked people traveling with me. He is a holy God. He doesn't like arrogant boasters. They're not going to stand before him. Um... You know, Lucifer tried that way back when. <laughs> How'd that work out for him? No arrogant boasters will stand before him. He destroys those that lie. I guess first uh, he hates workers of iniquity. You get the impression that the Lord hates sin? That is our Lord. He's, the psalmist is reflecting on who he, on who he is. He, he destroys those that lie. What does it say in John chapter 8 about 
the father of lies. Who is it? The devil being the father of lies. He destroys those who lie. As we review the attributes of God and focus on his character, it helps dispel any discouragement of who is able to deliver us in times of need. He is holy. He is pure. He is truthful. He is a holy God who loves justice and mercy. So the first step is to know who the Lord is like, who the Lord is. And you've had enough teaching in your life to know who the Lord is. But as you're discouraged, we sometimes forget that. So as you're making your plea, you are praying to God, remember who the Lord is and what he is like. The next verses, we see what the psalmist is like. The psalmist starts out in verse 7 with a strong contrast to those wicked people. It says, but as for me, in contrast to those the Lord would destroy, David comes to the Lord in the multitude of, of God's mercy. The choir sang this morning, wonderful, merciful Savior. One phrase in the song says this, you offer hope when our hearts have hopelessly lost our way. Don't you just love that phrase? God offers hope when we've kind of lost our way, when we are discouraged. Lamentations 3, verses 22 to 23, says, As it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Great are his mercies. It takes us back to verse 1 in the morning, remember? When the psalmist was praying. Right when his mercies are new, starting our days remembering God's mercy, then with a reverent fear of God as we go through that day. Verse 8 is a major prayer in the psalm. God now asked God to lead him in his righteousness. David didn't want to resort to the tactics of his enemies. It was his mercy that was important. How many times do we want to treat those who discourage us with a little bit of their own medicine, as we say? David has come reverently bowing down to God and asking him for his direction so as to not fall into the trap of imitating his enemies. Isn't that what we end up doing a lot of times? Someone lashes out at us, we're ready to lash out back. Are you good at that? Ah, as we check it and see God's mercy in our lives. How do we respond? We need to seek God's direction then. It's all right to pray before you open your mouth and, and, and say all you want to say to someone. It's all right to say, Lord, direct me. Show me what I should say. David has come reverently bowing down to God and asking him for his direction so as not to fall into that trap of imitating his enemies. He ends the verse asking God to make his path straight, to be right, pleasant, prosperous, 
And this is the same Hebrew word that Solomon used in Proverbs 3, verses 5, 6, and 7. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct. And that word right there that he, the psalmist used here means to straighten. He shall straighten thy paths. Boy, isn't it nice when you can see the next step to take? <laughs> and you can say, oh, boy, it was a crooked path and not seeing where to turn, and there it is. Asking the Lord to straight, straighten, direct your paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. We need to be like the psalmist to conquer the discouragement. The third description that he's going to give us tonight, not only what the Lord is like, what the psalmist is like, we're going to take a look at the enemies. What are the enemies like? David couldn't trust his, his, his enemies. Of course he couldn't. So he handed them over to God. It says their throat is an open sepulcher. Does that remind you of a verse in the, in the New Testament? You know the Romans road. Before we start verse 23, we get to verses 10 and the following verses. Their throat is an open sepulcher. There is none righteous, Paul says in Romans. No, not one. He goes on to say that their throat is an open sepulcher. They are deceitful. David recognizes that they will fall by their own counsels because they have rebelled against God. Here is a very significant lesson to learn. When dealing with those who oppose righteousness, realize that they are fighting God, not you. When someone is just attacking or just not doing the right thing, they're not necessarily attacking you, they're, they're attacking God. And as you see that, and you begin to pray for them in that respect, that they will stop being a rebellious Christian, but that they will want to follow God. Very good lesson to learn. Realize that they are fighting God, not you. He is to be relied upon for your defense. They will fall by themselves. Romans chapter 12 Verses 17 through 19 says this, Recompense to man, to, to, uh, recompense, no, to, recompense to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The din of discouragement is lessened when we focus on the Lord's fighting our battles for us. Imagine what God is doing in the life of your enemy right now. Is God that powerful? as he's working not only in your life, working in the life of the one that 
would oppose you. God is working. And we come to the other bookend, from the plea to the promise, verses 9 and 10. The key thought through this verse is obvious. Let's read it one more time. Verse uh, 9 and 10, for there is no faithfulness. I, I have the wrong verses there. Verses 11 and 12. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for what? For joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. There's our key thought that we have here. It's joy. In the first three verses of this psalm, we see murmuring, complaining, discouragement. How many times in the life of the Israelites was there murmuring, complaining, discouragement that they had as they were uh, leaving Egypt and going to the promised land? Sometimes before we get there, we have a lot of murmuring and complaining going on. Do we not? So as we look forward to any discouragement that we might have, stop the complaining and the murmuring because God wants to give us joy. That's what we see in these verses. Who are you putting your trust in? Are you discouraged or are you rejoicing? How often do we want to put our confidence in man, in others, in people? But oh, how we need to trust God. Discouraged? Stop trusting men. Stop trusting people. Trust God. It is He who is our anchor. If we fight our battles without the Lord, we'll become bitter and our countenances will bear the marks of the battle. Do you remember the response of Cain when God refused his offering in Genesis 4-5? What, what we see in Genesis 4 says, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So ba Cain became very angry, and in the NASB it says his, his face was gloomy. I wanted to put that one up there because well, we can all understand that one. His face was gloomy. David allowed God to take his inner burden that he had at the beginning of the psalm and replace it with inner joy. He leaves a promise we frequently forget. For thou, Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. We find here then a promise that he's given. We have his protection. The shield mentioned here was the largest of warriors' shields. There were a lot of different shields for the Old Testament battleground. This shield that he's using here, it's the largest. It covers the whole entire body. God wants to bless the one who looks to him for protection. How? He will do this by giving him favor and by providing him with his large, protective, yet invisible shield. Just having any shield is not the solution. Remember Goliath came to David? How was he dressed? With all of the protection possible that could ever... Why did he need that protection? Well, he was big, so about any arrow would hit him, probably. But he was 
dressed with all of the armament that could be. And they had, had the best of, of the protection that it could have. What was David's shield? We'll get back there to the Ephesians. Sorry about that. 1 Samuel 17, I thought I had it on the screen. Then David said, David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. He was out there every day. Who's going to come and try to take me down? And David realized when he got there, this guy? I've already had the bear, and I've already had wild animals, and, and why isn't someone going to take him down? And you know the response. Have you seen this guy? Just listen to his voice. You can hear his voice as it echoes from when you were in Sunday school when you were a child. And the Sunday school teacher was with the voice of Goliath. Come and get me. He said, you're coming with your sword and your shield. But I'm coming with all of the protection of the Lord. And that's how David is ending this psalm. With this kind of shield. And of course, we remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. You know these verses, probably know them pretty well. Verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And all this is important. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And then he goes through and shows the different equipment of a soldier. But you know what? They're really invisible they're really God's protection in our lives as we take on the word of God and prayer and, and we realize who our enemy is. All of that protection. It's that invisible shield that covers the whole body. And that's the shield that David was talking about in Psalm 5. God can replace your discouragement with joy as you recognize who your God is and how he wants to take away your discouragement and give you joy. Let God deal with your enemies as you renew your joy in the Lord every day. So just to recap, how do we conquer discouragement? Right at the beginning, cry out to God. Don't be afraid. And he even says, you know, we can groan a little bit. <laughs> because you're going to God with your groanings and your, and your heartache let him see that, that, that this is hurting, and Lord, I need you. Cry out to God. Then remember who God is and what he's like. Remember all those attributes that you've learned about him. And go forward in God's mercy and reverent fear. Let God deal with your enemy, whatever that discouragement might be that is coming into your life today. 
live in the joy and the protection of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the insight that David had and that he can share with us in this psalm. And we often become discouraged. And that's okay. Because in our, our spirits, we can be sad at many different things in our lives. But I pray that these thoughts from David in this psalm will help us to know how to take care of discouragement in our life. Making you our very personal God. Claiming your promises. And we want to thank you for the joy and the protection that you give to us in our life. Jesus name.